Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. I'm sitting down with Trevor Publicover, the Vice President of Sales for Armament Technology Incorporated. They make, according to one very prominent optical physicist, the best rifle glass in the world. And they're located here in Halifax, Canada. Trevor, welcome to the Silvercore Podcast. Pleasure to be here. So, of course, that prominent optical physicist, that'd be uh, Ilya, Ilya Koshkin. Yes. And he is an individual who does not mince his words. He will tell you what he thinks, whether you like it or not. And when I was exploring different optics with him and talking about different glass that they have out there. He says, you know what? It goes to you guys, you Canadians. Best glass quantifiably in the world, ATI. And that's going to be your tangent theta line. That's correct. Yeah. So that really piqued my curiosity. And uh, I wanted to learn more about ATI and tangent theta, but what you guys do. And it's actually a pretty fascinating story. And uh, you've got some interesting stories yourself. And I kind of broke a golden rule that I usually have, which is don't talk to the person really ahead of time. (laughs) Don't talk to the person ahead of time. And because when you get into the podcast and you want to talk and you want to ask questions, you want it to be natural and something that you don't know the answers to. So there's a whole bunch of things that I've been kind of holding in the back of my head, although we have spent the last couple of days together and I got a good tour of the factory and and what you guys do. But, um, why don't I throw it over to you a little bit and, um, you can tell me a little bit about the history of ATI. Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. Honored to be here. Thank you. Um, really appreciate you jumping on a plane and flying all the way to, you know, little old Halifax, Nova Scotia to, to see us. And honestly, my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So we are a little strange for the Maritimes. Um, We're unique probably in Canada and most places of the world. And we do have a pretty unique story in it. I I think it's a pretty good story. Mm -hmm. Um, So Armament Technology uh, was founded in 1988 by Andrew Weber. And Andrew Weber is still the single owner of the company um, since retired from his day-to-day kind of positions and maintains our uh, executive consultant position. So he gets to come in when he's not out enjoying life, fishing, hunting, and kind of, you know, meddle in our business when uh, when he's a meddler, (laughs) but it's a good meddling. So um, it's nice to have him around. Um, So Andy, back in 1988, was working out of his basement. making sniper rifles um, for the police and the military. So he was modifying a 700 um, platform. Sorry. Remington 700. Remington 700. Yes. That's the word. And uh, that got complicated. We, he at the time was selling to Australia. There was some contracts in the United States, um, Boston Police Department, Mm. several Canadian contracts, and became very hard to convince a purchasing officer why his Remington 700 
which was $5,000, was better than a $800 out of the box. Right. Even though his was f- far superior. Right. Uh, we, that just kind of changed one day on the range um, in Connaught because um, Andy was a competitive shooter, has been all of his life, and had a relationship with Raytheon Elkin, Elkin at the time, Ernest Light's corporation and they made the Alcan C79. So for all of us Canadians, it's a very iconic scope. It's on every single rifle that the Canadian military carries. Um, It's either the big black or the big green thing on the top of the Mm -hmm. the C7 or the the C8. And um, back in that time, it was about 90, 91, 92. There was a few issues with the C79 and it wasn't retaining zero. Andy, being the machinist and the and the mind that he was, had figured out a fix for that on his own because he was having problems but was comp- uh, competing in service rifle stuff and was at the range and he was beating all of the military guys in the competition. Mm. And there was a group of core shooters that would travel from here and go up to Ontario and, and compete. One day, one of the commanders came up and said, why is it that your group of guys using the same equipment that my guys are using and you're beating us consistently? Right. And Andy's like, well, it's because yours is not the same as mine and I found a, you know, a zero retention issue and I found a way to fix it. And at that time, the guy said, well, can you fix ours? And Andy's like, uh, yeah. Absolutely, I can fix yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really when our armament that you are in today kind of kicked off. Uh, it was the the maintenance and repair and support for every single elk can scope that the Canadian military had. So that amassed to about 80,000 scopes, every single one of them uh, over the course of their now still current lifespan has come through this office, in some cases two or three times. So we've maintained that repair, support, refer, uh, refurbishment for the military for the last 15 years and still today um, we still do that today so it's a it's been a core part of our business Um, we've obviously evolved from that into multiple other uh, divisions and brands Uh, the the story kind of started first with us representing Alcan outside of the C79 scopes to a commercial market. Right. So the Spectre DR, um, the one to four, the one and a half to six, we were, and we still are, the master distributor for Alcan Raytheon. And that meant we handled the commercial business in Canada at the beginning. And then we started to evolve that into the United States and now kind of globally. So we are active in about 52 different countries around the world. Um, not just for Alcan, but for all of the products that we do. Um, that really was the beginning of something different from the C-79s that we did that, that supported that contract, which was still running strong. Mm. Then uh, Premier Reticles was a company out of Virginia. Right, yeah. And they did long-range sniper telescopes. We were a distributor for Premier, so we would buy scopes, bring them in, resell them to our distribution network, took the risk on the inventory, um, which is a familiar theme moving forward. Uh, As many people may know, if you're familiar with the long range shooting community, Premier had some troubles, 
they went out of business and they were insolvent. And basically there was several years where nothing happened and Andy wanted to do something different because he was a competitive shooter. He's won medals all around the world. Um, he's very accomplished. He couldn't find what he was looking for in the market at that point in time. Mm. So he said, you know what? I can do something myself. And we had a relationship with the people who had previously owned Premier and cracked a deal so that we bought the assets of Premier. That was it. It was like the machines, spare parts. Um, we had some inventory here. And Andy set out to design and manufacture and distribute what we would have considered the best scope or what we would want it to be the best scope on the planet. That's a lofty goal. It was a lofty goal. And, and it still maintains to be a lofty goal, but we've, we've come a long way in the last eight years. Well, a lofty goal from somebody who's building Remington 700s and accurizing yep. them and selling them and then getting into the optics world. That I mean, there's a entre entrepreneurial sort of spirit yep. that goes with all of this, which is uh, something that really kind of... Uh, uh, sat in the back of my head and was uh, reinforced meeting everybody here and meeting Andy. You know that saying, show me your friends, I'll show you who you are, right? Yeah. Well, when you go to a company and uh, let's say you go to your local subway and the people who are uh, working there are happy and chipper, you got an idea as to what management's like and uh, what work environment is. And you know they're going to spit in your sandwich or not. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You go there and everyone's upset and you're like, okay, yeah. or, or they're rude or they're, they typically kind of will mirror what the management's like. And um, that was one of the interesting things here, speaking with you as the vice president in your role and looking at all, every, all your coworkers from, yeah. from all different walks of life. Yeah. Everyone's happy. Everyone's yeah. smiling. Everyone's yeah. having a great time. And I mean, it's not like- It's, it's almost Friday. It's yeah. Friday. Come on. No, it's Thursday. Oh, it's Thursday. Yeah, it's yeah, Thursday. Right. Come it's on. Thursday. All right. So no excuse there. Right. Um, and before you go on, because I want to I hear about how Tangent Theta and, and uh, the goal there, uh, talking about the, the L-CAN. So L-CAN, E-L-CAN. So that'd be Ernst Litz Canada, right? Yep. Okay. You got it. So it was Ernst Litz II who kind of propelled the company forward, from my understanding anyways, yep. and they have four subdivisions under Leica, yep. I think it is. Yep. So high-end camera, optics, all the rest. I'm yep. sure everyone's heard of Leica, all if they that, haven't heard yeah. of Elcan. Have you, do you know anything about the um, the Leica Underground Railroad or under, have you heard of this thing? I have heard of it. I don't know if I know all the details, but... Um, well, I don't know all the details either. This? That's why I was going to ask, but from my understanding... So th there was a group of people that came from, if I'm reading this right, from Germany into Canada. From what I understand, uh, during uh, the war, the Holocaust, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ernst Litz would hire specifically people, Jewish people, and then uh, station them in places outside of Germany, right? And, and it became a thing where hundreds and hundreds of people were coming through and he would be hiring them and stationing them in other places and he would set them up with uh, funds to get them going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think everyone got a camera as well, if I'm not mistaken. You know what? I'm going to have to dig into this because I, I didn't know all that detail. I, I heard a little bit, but 
This is this is something I've heard in the past because what I from what yeah, I understand, cool. and his daughter as well was heavily involved with that, and she was, um, um, I think, something to do with uh, Ukrainian slave labor, mostly oh, wow. women, and helping to uh, uh, empower them. Like just some really really phenomenal things out of that, out of the out of that family, and apparently nobody wanted to talk about it. Uh, they didn't want it publicized. And so after the last one, I guess, passed away, they've gone and made a book out of it. And I think they made some sort of a Netflix show or a movie out of it, but, uh, really? yeah, but so there's, How did I miss all that? There, there's an interesting kind of heritage thing that yeah. goes in line with trying to do good, um, yeah. taking risks. And those are some big risks, right? And at that point um, in time, that's a big risk. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, show me your friends. I'll show you who you are. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, uh. Uh, you guys working with the Ernst Litz Corporation and you're yep. doing some interesting things as well, innovating in some risky ways within your company. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit of, uh, That's interesting. of, of history there. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're looking, they say, look, we want to make the best rifle optics in the world. What does that mean? Like, what, what are we looking at? Quality. Sure. Yes. Um, the support for it, the things that. If you're referring to what Andy set out in Tangent Theta, it was without question everything that he could find that he thought was the best in class. Mm. And we really set out to be the Rolls Royce of the optics world. Mm. That was our internal goal. We wanted to be the best in optical quality, in clarity, we wanted to have the scope that was the most repeatable. Mm. So it always went out to the extreme ranges. It came back to zero. We really wanted to have the scope that was, um, I mean, the clickiest clicks on the planet. The clickiest clicks. <laughs> we wanted the clickiest clicks. You don't want mushy clicks. We don't want mushy clicks, but we wanted it to be very precise. And a tangent theta scope is an instrument. Um, mm. and it's kind of a self-testing instrument almost. Um, it's, it, it has, has come into this world and proven itself to all of its users just by being good. And mm. it's really easy for me as, you know, the sales guy to sure. talk about that stuff and say, yeah, yeah, we're the best or sure. whatever. Nobody really believes me. But when you get <laughs> eyes on the scope, when you get to go to the range, right. when you get to run it to the extre extremes, or if you get to come and tour through the plant and you see how we test it, how the design was tested, how every single production model gets tested, then you can see maybe how we got to the best scope in the world. But being the best, you know, it, it also means a lot more than just having a good product. You have to stand behind your product. You have mm. to support the product. We're not immune to issues right. like everybody else. Sure. It's a bespoke product. These are handcrafted scopes. Things go wrong. Mm. Sorry, things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but we like to think that we stand behind everything that happens and uh, we take it extremely serious. If there's an issue and a customer has a problem, things stop, we get the scope back. The same people that build the scope are the same people that repair the scope. So um, you see we're a fairly lean and mean operation here, but we're, we take all of that stuff to heart. So being the best means people we'll use our products. Mm. People, um, see the value in what we sell our products for. Sure. 
because we are at the very high end of the scale. Not, right. Not absolutely highest, but we're we're up there. There's pricier scopes out there, but yeah. you're, you're up there. We're and, up there. you know, I remember reading one place talking about, um, it's like Mercedes-Benz. They yeah. said, we want to build the best vehicle. And once it's built, we'll take a look at all the costs involved in order to do this and price it accordingly, as opposed to saying, well, we've got a, we've got a cost bracket that we want to be working around. What do we have to start culling? What do we have to cut and so we can meet that and still have a good vehicle? It sounds like you guys have taken the approach of let's just build the absolute best and then work our way backwards. We're, I mean, we've been saying this since the inception of Tangent Theater. We're fairly unapologetic about our price. And we wanted to make sure that the people that spend the money, they're going to get that value and they're going to mm-hmm. get what we hope that they see the value in that. Um, yeah, and we don't we don't want to sacrifice um, you know tolerances or parts or whatever that might be, and that would degrade the quality of the product. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as you saw today, there's a lot of little parts, a lot of little bits that go into a sniper rifle telescope. Right. I think I'm going to get this wrong. But it's like 252 individual little parts. Some of them have tolerances of microns, and mm-hmm. when you're putting that all together and put it on a shock tester and test it at a thousand G's for a thousand drops or whatever we are doing to qualify it, it's got to hold up, Mm -hmm. but it also has to hold up in the field. It has to hold up to recoil. You know, our scopes are qualified to 50 calibers and higher, but they also have to survive being, you know, jumped out of a plane, into the water, out of the water, into an atmosphere, whatever this, whatever the situation might provide. So we're building scopes for professional users. And that might be military police, um, professional shooters, or guys who just see the value in, in spending the money on a good product. Well, I, I know I've got some questions that uh, we put out through uh, social media just for people who are interested in learning a bit more about the, uh, the scopes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I thought was pretty neat was, was the shock testing, the pressure testing, the temperature testings. Like you guys will get these things down. Like what, how far below negative? We go to, we go to the mill spec, which I think is negative 85, um, and plus the same, I believe is 85 or 90. Wow. Um, I think maybe it'd be good to step back a little bit because we do a lot of different things here. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we can just take a minute to explain, like we are the master distrib- distributor for Alcan. Right. We have um, our reticle and some IP in the scopes that we sell. We are the OEM manufacturer of Tangent Theta. Yeah. We have several brands um, that we make like SAI Optics, Zoptech, and then we have Tenebrex. Right. So we're a little confusing to some and uh, lines kind of get a little skewed sometimes and, and people get a little confused. So yeah. the stuff that we test and we build in here, Tangent Theta are, is our design, our baby. And mm. as you saw, we, we run the test and all that. But we also run all those same tests on all of the other scopes that we sell, even though we don't make them. Oh, that's awesome. So we want to make sure that everything, I didn't realize that. everything cool. we do gets held up to the same standard. It may not be the same thing that we're building in-house, mm. but we're holding it to the same standard. And SAI Optics, which we can talk about later, we've aided in the design. We don't make it here. It's made for us in Japan. Mm. But 
we've got a lot of experience. We have a lot of smart people. We have optical engineers and we have a network of people that um, we've just developed over the last you know, 34 years of being in business. So we've got a pretty deep bench to draw from and that goes into our designs, whether we make it in-house or not. Um, but we make sure that whatever we sell, we want to be, you know, the best in class. Right. Well, do you want to jump into a couple of the questions that people had? Yeah. I, I got some questions about uh, a hunting trip that uh, okay. alluded to before, <laughs> yeah. but, but before we get into that, let's just see, we, see if I can pull it up here on my phone. Questions are good. Yeah. Um, ooh, here's an interesting one. Release date for a tangent seven to thirty-five. Can't tell you. No, okay. No, I can tell you. <laughs> so we are. We've been working on a seven to thirty-five. We've been reluctant to give a lot of information out. I did a podcast a few months ago where we kind of leaked a little bit of it and um, spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. We are hoping that we'll have something for a, uh, a demo model for shot. It may not be an official release, but we might have something at shot show this year. Uh, we're kind of stuck on a couple components. So supply mm. chain's been a bit of an issue. Um, why takes, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I I don't no know what's idea. happened. Yeah. Uh, we're planning and hoping that it will be in shot time frame. If that doesn't happen, it will be shortly after that, but we're looking at Q1 for a potential release of seven to 35. Wow. That's pretty soon. We're pretty excited. Well, and that answers the next one. How long till they release a tangent theta of the 35 to 37 top end? So there that would be go. about the same. Yeah. Yeah. Will they ever make an SAI six with a different reticle? We will. Um, so uh. I guess maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So we constantly try to be innovative and figure out new things and we get a lot of feedback from our customer base and what they like and what they don't like. And we try to kind of fit it into our model. So what we're working on now is uh, like a mill-based reticle. So everything that we have yeah. in SAI, well, there's two options. Um, it's our rapid aiming reticle calibrated in 5.56 or 7.62. And it's the same calibrations that we use for the LCAN 1 to 4. So it's very similar ballistics. We have had a lot of feedback that people just want to have a mill, just straight up mill tree reticle. So sure. we're working on that. Um, we're still multiple months away from that being an, a product, um, just with kind of the cycles and probably also looking at a uh, MOA version um, as well. Hmm. So, Okay. Very cool. Yep. Uh, this is my favorite question. Uh, so the last one was by uh, a Gear Report Caleb who asked that one. And we've got a Gur.bolt. Who do small circle glass make far away bigger? <laughs> <laughs> did you see that one? Yes, I did. I don't know. What I think the answer was yes. The answer there is yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about spotting scopes? This is Okanagan Precision Shooters. Good uh, question. Uh, we talk about that frequently in yeah. our R&D meetings. And the answer right now is no. There's no direct plan for that. Mm. Um, we have, you know, we have the ability to do that, but our... Focus right now is on our core business of our primary models and our new released models. Um, we have a we have a, a, a very large back order. Um, we we're doing our best to make them as fast as we can. Sure, but we're really kind of at capacity in some regards, and we're looking to expand. I don't know if we've got room right now for a spotting scope. 
I'm, it's not off the not off the table, but mm. there's no short term plan for it. Yeah, I guess you know building the company out, you got to make sure you're taking those steps and manageable manageable steps and manageable steps. As yeah. growth comes, you can take bigger steps. Yeah, yeah. I think we um, everything is an option at this point. Um, we just want to make sure we're doing the right thing, and we're satisfying the customers that are you know buying from us now, and we just we don't want to let anybody down. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, the um, look looking at yeah, you know, the, the people say you know we we punch above our weight class. Looking what you guys have built, cause starting from hey, I work on Remington seven hundred actions and I accurize yeah, yeah. them to now I'm a distributor working on uh, optics for the Can- Canadian military to I want to have the best glass in the world. Like, those are some pretty big steps for, for a company to take, I would say. I guess when you put it like that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and you talked, uh, we've talked before about it, and you, and you briefly brought it up at the, uh, the beginning about risks, taking risks on ensuring that you, you just invest more into the company on inventory in order to have things on hand for yeah. whatever eventuality. Yeah. We realized that early. Um, if we don't have the inventory, or we're not planning, you know, years in advance. That's that's been one of the keys to our success on pretty much all of our brands and and developments. And uh, we don't. Uh, sometimes we miss the mark, and you know, we'll sell more, and we get stuck with no inventory, or we can't make it fast enough. Mm. We we try to always have something in stock. Tangent Data has kind of been the exception because it's it's been. I mean, it's been great and it's been very popular. We just, we would, we'll get better at getting them out quicker. But right now we're just, we don't want to miss out on the quality and we just don't want to, we don't want to rush. Right. Quality over quantity. Take the time to get it right. Or, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Quality over quantity. Yeah. Have, have there been times just from a personal interest, from a uh, sort of like business development standpoint, have there been times when you've taken those risks of uh, stocking extra inventory and it's really bit you in the butt? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But you know, we we manage it um, in a way that it doesn't impact the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been we've been pretty lucky that we you know we we drive it fairly hard, and we've got a lot of good connections. And there's a lot what we're stocking up on. It, when we get caught in those situations, it's only usually for a few months that we have to to carry it. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's not because of something that we've done or a customer's done, it's been a market condition or something changed politically that has, you know, has changed a motivation, but things usually come back around. And So if, if a few months down the line, it kind of figures itself out, it doesn't sound like it's been the, the hardest bite in the butt. No, no. It's, it was kind of the answer I figured it'd come to, and I only figured that was... Just a little sting. A little sting for <laughs> a bit, a but you figure sting. away because... Yeah from the entrepreneur mindset and really everybody who works here seems to have a, uh, the freedom or ability to be able to make suggestions or affect change within the company in a way that, uh, an owner, an entrepreneur could, um, there's always an answer. There's always a solution. There's always a way when you get to the end and you look back did the ends justify the means. Like, did I, like, should have I just cut bait sooner and, yeah, and yeah. just counted my losses? But um, maybe yes, maybe no, but it seems to me from talking to everybody here and yourself that a uh, big key to the success that ATI has seen 
is in its ability to be, and I'm using air brackets here, lucky. And of course, you know, the harder we work, the luckier, <laughs> yeah. luckier we get yeah, just yeah, yeah. by some weird coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So we are a very entrepreneurial company and our culture really breeds that in all of our employees. And I think there's that, um, that mentality that people will do whatever it takes to get things done when they need to get them done. Mm. We did a tour of Tenebrex earlier today and you know, you, all the, the people in the back that are working through thousands and thousands of yeah. flip cover kits and ARDS. And it's not uncommon that, you know, we've got a production schedule that goes out to multiple months, sometimes straight out over a year, a customer will call us to listen. I know we're not scheduled to receive these parts until, you know, three months away, but we really need them next week because it's holding up a big military order. Mm -hmm. There goes nights and weekends for everybody, but nobody complains. Everyone drops and does whatever it needs to do to get that stuff out to do our best to help the customer. And, it, and it's right across the company. It's not just in our Tenebrex line, Tangent Theta, operations and support. Like, we really have a good group of people here um, that get her done. That get her done. Get her done. Yeah. Lucky. Air, air quotes Air here quotes again. lucky. Right. Yes. And we have a very low turnover rate. The people that come in, like I said, it breeds that, just the culture and the mentality. And, and once people come in, you know, we take care, we'd like to think we take care of our people and, you know, we hope that they stick around. Well, I get kind of a family vibe here. Honestly, I know it you is. guys aren't all related, but you get kind of a family vibe that everybody is working That's together. That's an Atlantic Canadian thing. There you, know. you go. Yeah. It's <laughs> a maritime thing. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe in some ways, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure not all maritime companies are going to have that. Um, Kyle Mack asked, can you ask him what kind of glass they use in the SAI 1-6? to Is it the same they use in the Elkin offerings? So let's talk about glass for a minute. Okay. Let's step away and talk about glass for a second. Sure. We get that question a lot, and it's not just for SAI, but optics in general. There is... A few places in the world where the substrates come from, and there are many different specs for glass. And inside of a scope, there's lots of glass. Right. right. <laughs> it's not just the glass that's on the objective end. Yeah. There's multiple lenses and, and elements that are throughout it, and all of them have different specifications and could come from different places. So we spec and source all of our glass for tangent data from Germany. Hmm. They can come from multiple sources. Um, some are in Asia and others are in Germany and others are in Japan and they could all be mixed in different areas. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like the secret sauce that nobody talks about, but there is no real good answer, but we get all of our stuff from Germany for tangent data. SAI all comes from Japan. Right. That's where the scopes are manufactured. Some of that glass may come from Germany. Some of that glass may come from Asia. Some of that mm -hmm. glass is made in Japan, but it's all done by the spec of the actual element when it gets designed in the optical, um, in the optical design early on. So, so the answer to the question specifically is it's probably mostly Japanese glass um, okay. in the SAI. It's not the same as the glass that's in Tangent Theta very similar in the quality and the spec and the design mm. because we got to spec that. Right. So um, there's a bunch of different glass elements inside and they're probably all a little bit different. It's hard to say where exactly each one's coming from. It depends on the spec. That's a good point. That's something I never thought about actually, that 
where does the glass come from? Well, not all of it necessarily comes from the same place. No, it doesn't. Huh. Um, generally speaking, I think there's uh, this thing that floats around on the internet and people hear one word, like there's a manufacturer in Germany and if you know it's that type of glass and that just satisfies everyone in there, okay, well, that's good. Marketing. It's right? marketing. Yeah. Um, but I would say that most of the manufacturers in the optics field probably have the same... Dilemma and elements come from all over the place. It just depends on what the quality is and what the clarity is and how the resolution works. Makes sense. So hopefully that answers the question. Okay, Kyle Mack, and he also doubled up here. He says, uh, and also in another text, if they plan on releasing one to eight or higher magnification scope or a new hybrid type site, like the LCAN 1 to 4 and 1 to 6 from SAI, LCAN, or TT, tangent theta. So if I just said yes, would, would that, that answer be okay? <laughs> yes, next question. <laughs> so um, SAI, we are planning that to be a family of scopes. It was always designed to be a family of optics that was in a different space than tangent theta. Tangent theta is at the upper end of the of the pyramid. There is a, a big market for quality scopes in the mid-range price. Mm. Um, and there are some holes in maybe different magnifications that work for different applications that we've identified. Not that it's a big surprise, but we are working on a family of optics to... Um, build out our SAI line farther than the one to six. So we had to start somewhere. One to six was where we started. Yeah. We understand it's a, you know, it's a pretty competitive market. There's lots of great scopes out there. We feel like we've got a good start with SAI mm. and we're going to build on that. So the answer is yes. Answer is yes. Hey, good answer. Um, that I will say we're not going to build something looks like an Alcan 1 to 4. That's separate. Like right. Alcan is... Alcan's Alcan. Alcan's Alcan. Right. We're looking at more of the low power variable stuff um, in different magnifications that will be higher. So we've talked about this one before, and that's about the reticle on the 1 to 6 and how it can be a bit polarizing. Yeah. And this guy says, I want to get an SAI 1 to 6, but the reticle leaves a lot desired, it says. Would love to see other offerings. Also, maybe a one to eight. So it looks like you've kind of touched on that a little bit. Next guy says, I agree. Reticle's not for everyone. Glass clarity, uh, build quality, color correctness is spot on though. And that was by Gear Report Caleb. So uh, let's talk about a polarizing reticle because we, we had some chats about this today about... Uh, we did. And the uh, similarity between, in my opinion anyways, boots. Boots and reticles. Yeah. It's a bit of a fad. Yeah. It's a bit of a thing. Um, it's hard for us to, well, I think it's hard for the industry in general to keep everything together. And there's not one radical that satisfies everyone. Mm -hmm. There's some that come close, but there's a lot of design and the way people shoot maybe is evolving a little bit and what they're looking for is evolving. Specifically, our rapid aiming radical, the design, we've had it for a long time. And it was designed originally in a scope that was to bracket a torso from shoulder to hip. Right. And that X-wing fighter look that some people call it, that's at 100 meters. It's for fast acquisition mm. and really draws your eye to the center of the target. Right. 
it's a lot for some people. And we knew that it was going to be polarizing when we put it out, but a lot of radicals are anyway. Um, sure. People just don't like some things about it. Other people love it. Most of the time, people just have to get behind it and they have to look at it and they have to use it and to see the application and to see it really draws the eye to the center of the aiming point mm. if you're moving um, and if you're shooting quick. And that was the whole intent. You know, I think a lot of people get stuck in analysis paralysis yeah. as well as social proofing. Yeah. So like yeah. Amazon and social media and the, and the rest and or different forums and blogs. Uh, people, if they're going to make a big purchase or even a little purchase, they want to see, they want to know, am I making the right decision? And so they'll go and they'll look at how many reviews are on it and what other people are saying about it. And that can, that can influence people's decisions a fair bit. Yep. And I likened it to boots. I remember I was heading out on a hike with a uh, buddy of mine. He just got back out of the uh, British army, fit and tough as nails and, and he said, oh, let's go for a hike. We'll just walk up a couple of the hills around here. Well, they're not hills. They're, they're mountains, but uh, I better go get a pair of boots. Someone's like, oh, those Danners, you should get these Danners. They're the best boots ever. They're so comfortable. They work great. You never get a blister. Well, Danner's completely inappropriate as a hiking boot number one, but uh, at, at the time, or at least the ones that I picked up were. And I picked them up and, uh, I couldn't wear shoes for about three weeks afterwards. Oh no. <laughs> I had blisters so bad. My, when I poured it and it was pouring rain too, when I poured it out, it was just red, red water coming out of these things. Um, yeah, maybe they're great for that person, but until you get behind them and yeah. use them, everyone's feet are going to be different. Everyone's eyes are going to be different. We talk about glass. I mean, quantifiably, Ilya can say, this is the best glass right. ever. Uh, based on, on scientific ana analysis, but how your eye sees it and then your brain perceives it is going to be a certain level of subjectivity involved here. And just like with those reticles, there's going to be some reticles that some people just swear by and they just say, this is the best. And maybe it's really good for them, but you really have to go and try it for yourself. You do. And really, I've been shooting since I've been four years old. One thing that I have seen is a cycle of fads as they come through and they go over and it's all brand new again, but you can make anything work for you. You can. Maybe some things you're tweaking a little bit, but yeah. I mean, even your duplex reticles, you can range with if you have known, uh, measurements on them and you exactly. can, right. And you can make uh, calls with it and, uh, just the old school hunter, hunter duplex. Um, so I think for people when they're looking at reticles, it's really important to not get tied up in what everybody else might be saying, but take a look at your specific application of yeah. what you're hoping to use it for the majority of the time yeah. and then work your way back from there. Does this one fit and will it do well? And I don't know, I, from my perspective, I think that's a, uh, it's not Gucci and sexy and in a marketing thing, like always putting a new reticle out, but, uh, we're trying I, not to be Gucci and markety and all that <laughs> stuff, but I mean, it, it happens. And right. when we released the SAI one to six with the rapid aiming reticle, we were really targeting like three gun shooters, fast moving, quick acquisition of the target. Right. Uh, that was what, you know, it, it, it brackets an IPSEC target at, at hundred meters perfectly. Yeah. Uh, that was the intent. And, you know, like you said, you can make that work for pretty much anything if you, if that suits you and it doesn't annoy you every time you look through the scope, but. 
I got I got one more question. I think I can ask in here. Then I want to delve a little bit just about uh, more about the company because it, sure. it does intrigue me. Sure, sure. Um, uh, here's a good one. How do I get it? Uh, thanks for all these questions. This is great. Yeah, no problem. Glad, I mean, glad this, this isn't me. This is people yeah. who just written in and um, Adam Bach says, Adam, I've known him since he's been 12 years old. Fantastic fellow. Um, he's on the range any day that he can get away and get on the range nice. and he's helping others do the same. Nice. Uh, good instructor, good ambassador for uh, for the, uh, the gun world in general. Um, he said, I'd like to know about the scope price points and durability. Is there a diminishing return on expensive scope when it comes to the abuse that it can take and still function flawlessly with super high end scopes. Does the end user expect better build quality to withstand harsher punishment or is it just exact extracting perfect optical clarity? And then he piles an also, so this is actually three questions. Also, can you physically wear out a scope turret from use? (laughs) So that I'm sure you may, maybe we've got the last one. So why don't we just go through them systematically? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think going back to making the best scope on the planet and the quality and the support, there is an expectation that that scope is more ruggedized. We're Mm -hmm. building them for a military uh, specification. We expect that soldiers would use them um, in their day-to-day taskings and everything beneath that. We also understand and we weren't the scopes against manufacturer's defects for the life of a tangent data scope. We are designing these things to last and, you know, to take a licking and keep on ticking. Right. If I'm allowed to say that, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. So I think, yes, if you are paying good money for a scope, you can expect it. It's going to last. Um, but if you're a guy who falls and drops a scope on a rock or whatever mm. and follow to your tree stand or the things that life put in front of you that aren't necessarily manufacturer's defects. Yeah, you know what? That may not be the case, but it yeah. depends. Everything is situational. Yeah. And for this times that that has happened in the past, we'll bring a scope back in. We'll have a look at it. Most cases, if we can fix it, we'll fix it. If there's some minimal cost, like there's things that we can't fix. Sure. If you scratch the glass, if you bust an element, it has to be replaced. Right. But we can figure that out on a case-by-case basis. There is the care of the glass, how Mm. you clean the glass, the licking of the glove in the But that doesn't work? Yeah. Or what? I mean, that's the most (laughs) common thing that we have. You're like, what's that little swirly mark thing? So so there is an expectation of common sense, Mm. but- Generally, we will stand behind our products. But I think going back to the question, yes, you should expect your scope to last a little bit longer, to take a little bit more of a, a lick in within, you know, a, um, a degree of understanding that it can only take so much. It is really aluminum and glass. Right. So uh, inside of that, uh, we test to a certain, our designs are tested, improved, and then our scopes are also tested um, individually. Every single scope that leaves this faculty has a thousand rounds on our drop tester at a thousand Gs. And you were lucky enough to witness that today. Yeah, that drive be insane. Yeah, it's crazy and it's just behind us here. So funk, 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 all day. We wanna make sure that the elements stay together, all the pieces work when you're using them in extreme ranges. So 
when the erector tube gets dialed up to its extreme ups and downs yeah. um, and left and right, yeah. that it comes back to its optical center where you've zeroed it and has a repeatable function. So that's very important. And we test it through multiple phases. Um, we leak test each one to make sure that there's no design flaw in the scope. Um, if there is, it goes back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. We drop test it. All our scopes are filled with nitrogen, so they're not susceptible to the temperature changes and buildup of um, condensation inside on the glass if something changes. So all that's pretty serious stuff and intended for, you know, professional serious users. And, you know, we were talking before about a, um, a batch that I was at and it rained and like we're in British Columbia and it rained and rained and like it was a multi-day match and day two, there is three people on the line and they all just so happen to be, maybe they're the same batch run or something, but it was an, another scope company, not an inexpensive scope company. And they're having fogging issues in there. And it struck me that um, now this company's probably producing a lot more and maybe they're not able to um, test each and every scope in the same way. But the level of confidence that comes with knowing that you're actually going to be able to see your target, yeah. whether it's just a competition and it's yeah. a... Um, uh, and it's sort of extreme conditions or you're out uh, hunting and it's really uh, cold out. I mean... They, they couldn't see the target. The things just fogged completely up on them. Some, yeah, some they kept going through and that pressure testing, that was just kind of neat because you, on the underneath side of the scope, the, you got this thing you can attach before it's all fully, fully assembled yep. and it's got to maintain and have zero pressure leak in or out. And, um, there's ways if there was a leak, they'd be able to uh, determine and find it. I mean, that we've talked before on the podcast about like the Nike effect. Yep. You put Nikes on, you can run faster and jump yeah. higher. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just a psychological thing. Cause people have a confidence in what it is. If I look better, I'll do better. Right. But shooting is such a psychological thing. Yeah. Right. They say it's nice. So with tangent theta is you can shoot farther and faster. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because you got that psychological <laughs> sort of look at, I, I have the confidence in knowing that it's been drop test X amount of times. And right. Very annoyingly in, in an office where you keep hearing these thunks, Maybe. Uh, where it's got the, um, uh, where it's been pressure tested. I've, yeah, I thought that was a, uh, uh, personally, I'd, if I were you guys, I'd be putting that on the whole marketing brochure and, uh, and throwing it out there. Yeah, absolutely. And then that adds to, you know, the, the build time and that, yeah. again, we don't sacrifice the quality and we want to make sure that every one of them is tested. And, um, that is super important to us, but you know, to the other guys in the line that had the fogging issue, yeah, like us, like them, we're not you know, immune to all of these issues. Sometimes, you know, the Murphy shows up or sure. there's a, there's a problem, but again, it's how you handle it. And how do you deal with problem. it? Right. How do you deal with it? And that's a very serious issue around here. So, um, so we have a few more questions, but I'll get into them afterwards because you're talking a little bit about, uh, care and maintenance. So you're saying I can't spit on my objective lens <laughs> well, I mean, anymore you can, but <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and rub it off with steel wool. No, that's, that's, that's probably not best practice. Okay. So, uh, what about, uh, giving a little, uh, breath and, uh, maybe using a microfiber cloth or that's okay. Kleenex? That's a like, Kleenex. Eh, okay. I, it, that's a little sketchy unless you really had to. So okay. every scope now ships with a lens pen, um, tangent theta 
Um, well, it's actually a Tenebrex lens pen and a microfiber cloth. Okay. We had story time. Okay. <laughs> so we had a, a, an instruction sheet on our website probably five, six years ago where there was this whole detailed set of instructions where you had like canned air and you blew the, all the dust off the, the glass with oh, the canned air. With that. So yeah, I certainly do. How do you bead blast things? Well, yeah. compressed air and particles. Anyways. Well, this particular story was um, a bench rush shooter in the desert. Was it upside down? Upside down. Uh, and the glass exploded. Okay, I'll let you talk it through for people who don't understand what's going to happen here. So he read the instructions and he was cleaning because it was dusty on the desert and uh, wanted to clear the glass off before he used the lens pen. But it was 110 degrees in the desert took the canned air and instead of just blowing it off, turned the canned air upside down, which kind of turns into like this liquid nitrogen right. type thing yeah. and sprayed the objective lens with the canned air upside down. It, it popped. So our bad, we shouldn't have said, <laughs> don't do that on the desert when it's 110. We helped the guy out. Sure. Uh, so again, back to this whole common sense don't put anything that's abrasive. Um, your service gloves with a little leather, you know, that, that was a, that was a big thing with a lot of the C79s we got back. You know, guys mm. get sand on the lens. It's like, I got to see. So the tongue and the thing, it works for a while, but, sure. uh, what we say is, you know, if you have a lens pen with a brush or there, you can buy these little, um, like little blower tubes that will kind of blow right. some light air, clear off the lens. You can, um, turn the lens pen around and there's a little pad right. that has some solution on it. So it gets out all the spots. Uh, it's pretty slick. It's easy. Just don't use anything that's abrasive. So the stuff that you think is going to work, the stuff you'd use on your eyeglasses, it'd be the same thing. Okay. So you can spray um, some like alcohol uh, on the lens to clear it off. But would that, would that detract from the coatings that are on the lens? A little no. alcohol? No. no, but particles and scratch as well. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that compressed air cans, when I was younger, I used to get a fair few letters back to school <laughs> to my, <laughs> to my home and, uh, they weren't always good letters, no, really? but, I, but I was able to take that compressed air upside down and he can press down on the paper and spray it and yeah. it makes the whole thing go translucent so you can read what's actually in the envelope and then it's shortly after it all kind of evaporates and dries up. Oh, so, I like that. Yeah, that was, that was my little spy trick. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, so no canned air. No canned air. No canned air. Okay, so that's basic cleaning. Um, straightforward. We do have instructions on our website. That don't have canned air? That don't have canned air. At least I hope they don't. No, we took that out. <laughs> um, there's some detailed stuff, and there's different options depending on the level of cleaning, but just general maintenance is, you know. What if someone does get a scratch on there? Can that be like polished out, or is that the coating that's? That's the coating. So, so if the if the lens gets scratched, depending on whether you can live with it, hmm. um, it means it either has to be well, it has to be replaced, or it's just beyond economical repair. Do you you know I've seen scratched lenses I've looked through and they look just fine, yep. right? I mean, but you look at the lens, they can have some pretty good scratches. Yep. Just like with like photography, you can scratch a lens up and yep. it takes great pictures. Uh, does it have to be pretty significant? of a scratch for you to have some sort of an optical issue or? Well, I think it's more what the user can manage. Um, so some people just can't 
stand to look through their scope and see any degradation in the image, mm. whether it be a little spot of dirt. Um, and sometimes dirt gets loose inside through the ma- like through the production process. Mm. It happens. Yeah. There'll be spots on the glass. Some people can live with it. Some people can't. Yeah. Scratch doesn't really degrade what it is, except it's an obstruction in your line of sight. Okay. So it depends. So that clean room that you guys have upstairs. Yep. That was pretty cool. So you're a little yep. bit, uh, first thing I noticed when I went in there is a bit warmer, a bit more humid. Yep. Tri-laminar tri- flow benches. So there's a positive airflow that goes through the whole clean room, which is meant to keep all the dust particles and all the dirt. That's why they don't let sales guys in there. So right. just keep all that right. stuff out of that. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we have our we have our people that work in the pods inside and we do our best to keep the dust and the dirt down. Even throughout the whole office, we keep it at a very high humidity and we just want to keep all that stuff at a, at a minimum. Human error will bind to the particles, keep it down. You got it. Smart. Um, okay, so got an idea on cleaning. How about uh, what are things I can do to really uh, mess up mounting the scope? Good question. We get it a lot. Okay. And there are a lot of scope ring manufacturers. Um, we've pretty much run the gamut of most of the major ones. And we've found... Uh, kind of the sweet spot for our five to 25s where we publish a torque spec for the rings and it's 25 inch pounds, regardless of what the ring manufacturer says is the limit for their rings. Mm. So we have a lot of experience and history through our past life with premier, mm-hmm. um, dealing with their scopes. There were some thin wall scopes where if you over torqued the, the rings, it would pinch um, the tube, which crossed the erector, mm. which caused issues with parallax. Some cases you could release the tension on, on the rings and it would go back to what would be normal. Other cases it didn't and Went it had to far. be ripped apart. Mm. So we understood that in the design for our five to 25. So we beefed up the tube a little bit mm. and we made it, more rugged, and we published a spec to torque your rings to, which is 25 inch pounds. I just said it. I'm yeah, yeah, say it again. 25 inch pounds. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty much all of the major manufacturers now, you will have no issues. But there are issues that come up if you, you know, just are a mutant sometimes and forget and <laughs> over torque stuff. It happens to the best of us. Well, there's, you know, uh, when I started working on guns, nobody talked about torque specs. Yep. Uh, and then they became all the rage. Everyone yep. says, it's got to be at this. Otherwise, your gun will fall apart or it'll blow up. It just won't work. And I think it's, if you have a feel and know where to tighten it to and it's not going to move, you're good and you're done. Um, some things that I've seen are people who don't uh, store their, their torque wrenches properly. I mean, good point. most have to be taken right back down to zero yep. and released and you know, they'll have inaccurate readings or they start using oil in there or Loctite, Loctite. fluid, that's going to change your, your settings again. And they're yep. like, oh no, it said 25 when I did there or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, having that feel is something you can't really teach, yeah. I guess over a booklet or a a YouTube, it might be a difficult thing to teach. And maybe that's why they came up with the, everyone started getting hot and heavy for uh, torque specs. Specs. Yeah. Uh, It happens. And, you know, there's new ring manufacturers that come up all the time. Uh, We try to work with everyone and Mm -hmm. we try to make sure that our stuff is, you know, quote unquote bulletproof, but 
we're susceptible to all the same issues that everybody sure. else is, right? And uh, the yeah, the the specs right now are higher than what they were, um, lower than what most manufacturers recommend that their rings are capable of. Mm-hmm. But you don't always necessarily need to have it maxed out. And you know, if you do run into an issue and you've mounted your scope up and you find like there's a problem on when on a tangent theta, parallax doesn't seem to be right first of all give us a call maybe second of all crank it down a little bit or just check to make sure you're at the right spec maybe you know have a do-over but um you know give us a call at the shop and we can walk you through all that stuff because you know that's pretty important sure i'd say so what about um let's see Uh, so when you're mounting this thing i keeping it level do you have any tips and tricks for people aside from uh we have a we have a whole big instruction sheet on very detailed uh, procedures to level a scope. Okay. But I mean, how do you level your scope? Do you level your gun? Use a plumb bob? Yeah. I mean, it's you. If you don't have all the tools, you can kind of make it up. Yeah. Um, and in most cases, it works. Yeah, that's what, that's sort of what I found. And you know, if you got an eye for it, you should be able to see if it's level yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. I think if you have a, a stable base for your gun, level your gun, yep. your rails as best you can. Yep. Mount your scope. Use a plumb bob hanging off the wall. Yeah. Level your reticle. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of more detailed stuff that you can go through, but it depends on, on, on. Well, you know, and some people say like they'll put a level on top of their scope, and they'll say, "Well, this scope." Uh, caps might not necessarily be level yeah. with the reticles. Correct. Okay. In most cases, I don't think they are. Okay. And I don't think like the, uh, not a good procedure for you to set the level on top of our scopes or any scope because it's not necessarily the same mm-hmm. in line with your rail. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I don't know. Did we, did we answer the last question there on the, uh, can you uh, wear out your, no, we uh, didn't. your turrets? No, but let's go back to that. Okay, Adam, we're back. Because that's an important one. Okay. That's one that we pride ourselves on and we spent millions of dollars to focus. Um, we wanted... Millions? Oh. Like hyperbole? Easy. Yes, easy. No, no, not hyperbole. No, no. <laughs> we spent many years in development to get to the place where, A, we had the clickiest clicks and that they didn't degrade over time and use. So we set up multiple jigs and the way our detents work are a little bit different. They're not, you know, ball detents. We have a little special, special, special thing inside. Um, saw that. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. (laughs) We mounted it on a jig and we hooked it up to, you know, it was pretty basic. It was a drill and we let that run for weeks and hundreds of thousands of rotations, mm. which far exceeded what the normal life expectancy would be mm. probably of the user of a scope. Sure. Um, and in most cases, nobody would ever be adjusting the turrets to that level. That's and a really OCD, but sure. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> so what we wanted to make sure is that over time, those clicks didn't get mushy mm. and they stayed precise and crisp and tactile and you could hear every positive click. And that was very important in, in the original design and slowed things down. And we maintain that today. And you saw it yourself. Um, yeah. There's people that spend a big chunk of their day testing the clicks and making sure that everything is perfect. Very cool. So I would say no. 
unless you go completely crazy, which uh, you'd have to spend a lot of time. Those clicks are not, our clicks are not going to um, get worse over time. I've got another question here. It says, uh, I'd be interested in a long range scope recommendation for a 300 wind mag, 500 yard plus. And uh, this is from a fellow, uh, Searsy 300. And he's a, um, I know him to be a hunter, been out waterfowl hunting with him in the past. I'm wondering if he's looking at this from a precision rifle standpoint or a hunting standpoint, but maybe if that little background gives a uh, uh, flavor to an answer. Uh, yep. And uh, I think we have something that's in between all of that, mm -hmm. where you could cross into precision rifle and hunting. Uh, we have something that kind of is dedicated to completely hunting. So we have a three to 15 in a hunter, long range hunter model. It has um, special turrets, which are, they're kind of locking, but you have to click them up to dial your targets, which I don't think we actually get to see today, but. No, we didn't look at that, did we? So the three to 15, it's a 30 millimeter tube, more than capable of, of, of uh, engaging anything, you know, 500 plus at that range. Yeah. And everything that we offer above that would be would be suitable. It just depends on how much weight you would like to carry, um, what zoom or what resolution you want to see at distance. Obviously, a five to twenty-five is going to get you a little bit closer to whatever it is you're aiming at. If that's what you want, mm -hmm. most people stick around ten to twelve, depending on how far their engagements are. And I would say you'd be comfortable at that level. Um, so the answer that depends is we probably have something that would suit either strictly hunting or in the middle of hunting and competition or just competition. What would the middle one be? What, what would you recommend for? Uh, Three to 15 P. So okay. it has a 34 mil tube, has uh, a little bit more range. So it gives you a little bit more uh, distance that you could reach out, mm. but still in a compact design, it's a little bit heavier than the 30 mil tube. Same beefy turrets as the 5 to 25, um, not as long, not as heavy, very good capable scope. Okay. One thing that we haven't talked about that we, I got to see firsthand today was the tourless re-zeroing. Yes. Yeah. That was pretty slick. Yeah. And you know what? Sorry, we forgot to talk about that. How the yeah. heck hasn't anybody done that before? I don't know. Yeah, so we've patented uh, Toolless ReZero, and it uh, it's really easy. We have uh, a screw on the top, um, very tactile, big fat fingers will fit in there. <laughs> you Once you get your zero, as we did today, yeah. you unwind it four or five revolutions, pick up your turret, put it back to zero, tighten it back down, you're done. Yeah, and, he, and no it tools. even holds your zero stop for you. Like it, it does. Resets so so it you resets it so you then have, you know, five clicks past that, so... That's pretty damn cool. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah, it works very well. So if people haven't seen that and they're interested, uh, I'm going to have something on the uh, yeah. Yeah. little video yeah, of that. Yeah, a little clip, so that'll be good. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at a few notes that I took here. Um, president on roster, too clean toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quick notes taken down, right? <laughs> nice work. Make sure not to mention. Right? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> no, we're going to bring it up anyway. I, yeah, so I just passed my 10-year mark with the company. Um, feels like you know, it was just yesterday. Like uh, So it, it's been great. My previous life, I came from a large defense contractor, um, was based out of the UK, 
kind of more corporate uh, environment and culture and kind of got tired of being on the road, wanted to spend time with my family and wasn't quite sure where to go. And just by strike of luck, I found this place and met with Ted and Andy and came on with the company. And within the first couple of weeks, I to the bathroom and there was a duty roster on the back with a bunch of names and a cleaning schedule and I'm like what's this and well uh, why is my name on that <laughs> it's like well you're up on Friday for cleaning the bathroom buddy um, so it speaks to the culture of our company and right. I was like hey, you gotta be kidding me and looking back now it's pretty cool I mean it's it's super cool the president the owner there's nobody that got excluded from cleaning the toilet duty or scrubbing the floors. We all took part in that. I was, I believe, employee number five or six when I when I came on. So uh, it was entrepreneurial. It still is. We don't have to clean the toilets now. We actually have somebody <laughs> comes in to do that. Thank God. <laughs> uh, we have a lot more people too. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, well, it speaks to the uh, to the business. Like I, I always hate it. Well, that's not my job. It's not my department. That's yeah. for someone else to do. I've worked here for X amount of years now, right. so I'm I'm above that. Ah, I no. mean, the job's a job. We all do it. Some are dirty, some aren't. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it speaks volumes to uh, a place that I would enjoy working at is one that that ego is left outside. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the things, cause I've seen, you know, like David background and yep. in, uh, British army, British military and, uh, uh, accomplished individual is a PRS shooter. I didn't get one whiff of ego from him nope. or anybody else here nope. and their backgrounds. I mean, Andy, like, holy crow, look at what he's done. Yeah. <laughs> right? Pretty amazing. F- from nothing. Yeah. Pretty Just, amazing. Out of his basement. Yeah. Well, I heard, uh. I didn't actually know the whole story with uh, Accuracy International. I thought that was kind of interesting. I think we can talk to the AI story maybe, but uh, (laughs) uh, Accuracy International just just started out of their basement, so to speak, as well. And they just, two people working in the shed, they got this contract to, uh, uh, or possibility to have a contract and they just ended rented a big old warehouse and had their friends dress up and uh, yeah. you know, look busy. And they said, look at, this is, this is our warehouse. This, it was a part of the procurement process. They had to do a factory tour, but uh, that sort of spirit of just getting it done. And now look at them where they're at. Yeah. AI is a, uh, I mean, they supply all the UK military with their precision rifles Huge. and other, other armies as well. Yeah. The difference between them and us at that point in time is we actually owned the building, so. it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you had a hunting story. I want to hear this one. You haven't brought it up yet. No, I haven't. Yeah, I don't no, know. I so uh, in the entire couple of days here, I, I heard something about uh, having to be medivaced out. Uh, yeah, yeah. So two years ago, I just passed the two-year anniversary. Um I grew up hunting um, with my dad and my brother, and we hunt on the eastern shore. It's a very rugged, um, thick, dense area. Generally, whitetail, you know, if you are lucky, if you see them at 20, you know, 50 yards, uh, that's that's max. And uh, we had found this new spot, and we kind of planned for it for six months, you know, looking at maps. We'd gone in, done recce, and just we set up blinds and 
cameras and all that. And, you know, my dad and my brother, the plan was to go and set in the blind, um, two lakes. I was going to go and kind of circle around. And there was a big buck that we were kind of tailing. I got fresh on the tail of this monster. So I was a little bit, you know, jacked up. Yeah, a little um, excited. A little excited. And uh, side to that and lessons learned and actually some of the things I've even picked up on the podcast from watching some of your guests, I know a lot of things that I did wrong that day. Uh, A lot of things that I could have done better that um, led to me getting medevaced out of the woods. So I was in a real tough spot where um, I was kind of on my hands and knees crawling through some thick bush and there were some um, quite steep hills with some quite steep little drop-offs. And, you know, my truck, I carry a first aid kit and a tourniquet and, you know, um, all kinds of bandages. And I have a little spot uh, messenger. So if, if I get caught... It's in my truck. All in your truck. And my yeah, that's pack, you it, right? which is my, I had a, I had enough to probably survive a week in my pack, which I was only going out for the day. But no way to message. So I had my cell phone. Okay. And I had a Garmin GPS. And I, uh, I probably halfway through the morning and messaged my brother. I said, hey, listen, uh, I don't know if you can see where I'm at, but I'm kind of getting close. I'm going to, this is my plan. I'm going to circle around this area, give him my UTM, and then kind of figured out on my phone that I could service. So we started sharing stuff. And then I took a step and I kind of cut my finger and I looked at my friends like, ah, you know what? I'm really dumb. I don't have anything to bandage myself up. So I put (laughs) my gloves on and there was a a fairly steep ledge right in front of me. And I kind of just surveyed the area. I took one step my pack on, I had my gun in my hand and I just lost my footing at the edge of this ledge. And I just went face first over the ledge. I was falling face face first, my gun with my tangent theta in this hand, pack on it and I kind of cupped up as I was falling and there was a sharp rock at the bottom. My leg hit the rock um, and snap my tib and fib. Um, oh my. So, so that's a good break. And it was out through the skin. So compound. I, uh, I kind of fuzzed out for a few minutes and I picked up my phone and I could still get to my brother. I'm like, I'm really messed up. I broke my leg. You got to get to me. And he's like, you know, you're joking, right? Like he <laughs> thought I was calling cause I shot the deer, yeah. which I didn't. Um, you know, I reached down, I grabbed my leg and I flipped over and it did the whole floppy floppy and right. I could feel the bone sticking out through. So I got my leg elevated. I still had my pack on. Were we feeling like getting like signs of shock when that happened? At or that you... point I was good. Um, okay. and I had taken, you know, I take first class, first aid all the time. Sure. You're, I'm self-aware. Um, my brother was the, uh, the head of the search and rescue for his area. Wasn't the area that we were in. <laughs> But we were 500 meters apart. It took him 45 minutes to get to me. It was that thick. And wow. so I laid in the hole, broken leg. Um, he got to me and I'm like, listen, you got to call 911. You and my dad are not getting me out of this spot. So long story short, I laid there for about three hours um, before a, the first people to get to me were uh, a fire department um, that had kind of trudged their way in. God love them. And yeah. uh, they had a sled. 
and uh, they got me in the sled. The paramedics kind of did first level kind of support. They got my leg in a, in a flap, flap, flap. They, yep, got the fla- they got the flappies down, but they couldn't, they couldn't administer any Mets because um, they didn't have the qualifications. So there was like 15 um, people, including police officers and the, and the uh, ambulance guys that drugged me out of the woods for three hours. Unmetted. When did the pain kick in? Uh, as soon as they put me into the sled. <laughs> yeah. So while you're waiting for them, it was like, okay. Well, when I was waiting for them, I was all right. And then it got dark mm. and I started to get cold and I could feel like, all right, I know that I'm, I've got signs of shock and right. you know, I'm talking to my brother and he's taking pictures of me and <laughs> you know, doing what you would do. As a brother would as do. As a brother would do. Um, yeah. So it, it was, uh, it was a bit surreal. Uh, I mean, it's like, I coming to the terms of the fact that I'm laying in the woods for what was a long time before my brother even got there with a broken leg. Scary. Knowing that all of my kit was in the truck and I didn't have it. And so, you know, I've internalized that a lot since. And, you know, you kind of live that over and over. And So lessons learned? Lessons learned. Not so heavy pack. Right. Take what I need. Not yeah. more than I need. Um take my time, be were a little you, bit more calculated. You're and, rushing a bit, were you? Um, I was, I was trying to cover some ground. Okay. Because. That's tactically advancing. Daylight, swiftly. daylight was, uh, was, was becoming scarce. It was in the afternoon. So it was about two thirty. you know, I wanted to get my eyes on that big buck. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I wouldn't have left home without my spot and I wouldn't have, uh, left my tourniquet and all my other first aid stuff, which for some reason was in my truck and I decided to take water and some mm. other food. And I had, I had a, a blanket and uh, other things, which I did use, but um, I had just some dumb mistakes that could have really cost me. And if I wouldn't have had cell coverage. That would have been tough. It would have been worse. You'd be crawling. Yeah, I, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so about how far of a fall was that, do you think? I'd say at about six, seven feet. Um, so it wasn't crazy, but you know, I watched my leg hit that rock and this is like, mm. ah, I knew as soon as it happened that, uh, that something was up. So the question I'm sure everyone's asking, how'd the scope fare? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it was strangely the, it was the thing that I can remember thinking about as I was falling. Cause you hear so many stories of guys falling with their rifles and, you know, discharging. So mm. as I'm falling, I threw it to the side okay. and it landed in some moss and there was some rocks. There was some scratches. It's since ran the battery test here, <laughs> still shooting it. So it was, uh, it was our three to 15 Hunter model. Uh, it was fine. Wow. It did way better than me. Way better than you. <laughs> I needed a three to 15 on my leg. So, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm looking through a couple more of my notes here. One of them I put down was cuts through Mirage. Yep. Okay. So there's so, a couple things that we can talk about. Yeah. One of them is the resolution and the clarity of the glass that is in our tangent thetas. Um, I think has an advantage to um, seeing through some of that distortion of Mirage. Another product that we have is a polarizing lens for the ocular end of the scope. Okay. So like your sunglasses, a yep. polarizer on an optic has the same impact. You have to tune it 
to get it to polarize, yeah. but helps cut down some of the effect of mirage. Um, shooting on a bright, sunny day over reflective surfaces like water, snow, helps reduce the glare um, from that to help you see your target better. If you happen to be in a position where you need to shoot or see through glass, um, same as your glasses, it takes away all the glare so you can see to the target to the other side. So one is the coatings, one is the resolution, the other is you know pairing that with a polarizer helps as a system to kind of bring that mirage down a little bit. It doesn't take it away, but it helps you see your target a little bit better. Interesting. Uh, one thing, so Tenebrex, flip cap covers. Yep. Um, got a cool tour of the factory there, looking yep. at all the stuff yep. you're doing, and they've got an interesting story as well. But uh, one thing that uh, you guys have is the ARDs, the anti-reflective devices. Yep. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how these ARDs work and uh, why somebody would want them? Absolutely. I think more people need them than they know and don't understand why they would want them. So I, I'm happy to, to talk about it because it's something that we developed for the U.S. military and goes back 25 years. And we developed a proprietary coding called Xloom. And that Xloom is put on the honeycomb uh, and it helps absorb light. There's two things that we want to block and that's the reflection coming back from the scope that if sunlight hits the glass right. and then comes straight back out is one. So if you're in the military and you're buried in the side of a hill, you don't want to be discovered because of you're flashing the back glint or the glare. Right. Yeah. Um, and also the reflection that's kind of come back off, it gets absorbed inside of that. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it actually acts as a, um, as a lens cover or, a sunshade. Sunshade. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. A two and a half inch honeycomb works the same as a sunshade. What it doesn't do is doesn't block the barrel uh, mirage right. um, because of the lens. So if you're, if you're stacking that. Obviously, we can't do the same thing, but it has the same effect as a sunshade. Helps if the angle comes in from the sun, so it kind of blocks off that glare from your eye when you're when you're looking at your scope. See, I picked some of that up because I, I just couldn't find a um, an ARD for a scope that I was looking for, yep. and uh, to just kind of screw in. But uh, Tenebrex had one that uh, worked with a scope, and it works great. And I use it for on a hunting rifle. Excellent. At um, uh, you only have to be looking right towards the sun yep. where they're coming in one time and not be able to see anything through it to realize I could really use a solution so I can actually see my target. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other kind of just maybe forgotten about part is it actually protects the glass in the front. So ah, yes. if you're trudging through the bush and, you know, you something happens, a stick hits your scope lens or, or whatever, it uh, it's a small price to pay to protect the coating on the lens. One thing I've heard people talk about is light transmission, and I know Ilya's got thoughts on that as well about yep. uh, the ideas of it. But um, uh, an ARD would change the amount of light just because it's got a, the honeycomb yep. mesh in front of it. It's going to change the amount of light that come through. Yep. Um, when and where would that be a concern, uh, or is it a psychological thing? It could be a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, it does It does have an impact on light transmission. Okay. For sure. Okay. It's very minimal. 
in maybe the very darkest edges of the evening, there may be a, a couple percentage um, drops in transmission. Very hard to see with the eye and mm. hard to measure in some cases. So uh, we do we do build different sizes and different thicknesses of the honeycomb. Mm. All have slight or different impacts. And the cool thing about the honeycomb in all of the magnified optics is you can't see it when you put it on the front of the skull. No, you can't. So the focal point is out past where the honeycomb is. And unless you're right. on a true 1X, you can get the imprint, but it really doesn't impede, you know, any of your shooting points. So uh, it, it's pretty cool. Very cool. Well, from my perspective, I mean, just if I'm if I want to ring steel, and it's a certain time of the day, and I'm in one of my lo- locations I like to go to, unless I have a sunshade or an ARD, uh, I'm just not seeing it. Yeah, uh, hunting, same thing out yeah. there. It came up, and I couldn't take the shot. It wasn't an ethical shot. Couldn't see the animal, so just had to let, let it go by. And I was like, I'm, I've got to find a solution for this. And the ARD nice. worked well. So we all of our Tenebrex products. Before you go to the next question, just while we're on the topic, all of them screw in. All of them, that's one of the things that we do very well. Right. If we're going to brag about something, we'll brag about the fact that we've got probably 5,000 fits for almost every optical optical manufacturer on the planet. Um, If we don't, we probably have something that's pretty close. Yes. Uh, It's a pretty tough business to have all the thread specs, the IDs, the ODs, and have all those fits. We generally, we have a few models that have the boots that go over, that kind of fit over the top on some different scope models that don't have the ability for a thread ring or right that up. So we try to fix something to that. But I would say 98% of all of our products for Tenebrex screw into the front or have a cap that goes over the back. Right. There is really not a standard in the optical industry for sizing and thread specs. and Which is crazy when you think dimensions. about it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's what we do well. Um, you may not think that when you go to our website and try to find your product, <laughs> but we're trying to get better at that. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Well, that's, um, yeah, I, I don't think most people think about the fact that to, you, within the same manufacture in the same line, you can have differing thread pitches or uh, IDs, ODs, inside diameter, outside diameter. Even it's just by the same line, same model, different year. Right. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people would really take that into consideration. And the fact that you guys have been just scrapping, carving out a niche yeah. in an area, yeah. which is probably really good at making sure that uh, uh, keep competition out because who else wants to go through all of that effort and expenditure? Um yeah, that's, uh, nothing worthwhile ever comes easy, does it? True. Yeah, right? True. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. And then, and we built the, we built the products to be tactically tough, um, going back to the original days. And I think I might've told you a story that the original design for the U.S. soldier was that flip cover that was positively attached to the scope was designed to be grabbed in the open position so they could stand up, pick up their gun and their optic by the flip cover and run. And right. move. And, you know, we've never, we tried not to lose sight of that. Right. Um, you know, sometimes being in the right place at the right time or setting yourself up so you're ready when the right opportunity comes up, that plays a big part in business, saying yes to the right people and making sure you're surrounded by the uh, 
same similar minded people who are positive who work in the right direction. I remember listening to you speak before about saying no to the wrong people. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, it, uh, there's a lot of different companies that have different business practices and we want to partner with companies, distributors, dealers who share our same beliefs, who mm. um, understand what it takes to sell high-end optic. We never compete or we don't compete on price generally. Mm. I'd say we never compete, but we stand behind the product. We understand that we are pr- then probably the most expensive in some cases. Mm. All of our products are usually a little bit more expensive. So having a partner that understands the value and the quality is extremely important to us. Mm. We've learned a few hard lessons. We've had to break relationships because of that, because Mm. they're not a good extension of our company here or us as, as the way we want to portray ourselves to our customers. And that's always a tough place to be in because, you know, hey, we're Canadians. We want to be friends with everyone. We well, don't we don't want to be that we don't want to be that guy, but sometimes you gotta be that guy. And you've built your business and reputation on saying yes. Can you do this? Yes we can. Yes. Right? Can you yeah. take this L can? Yes we can, right? Yeah. And at a certain point you gotta turn around and look at am I saying yes to the right people? Yeah. Am I being a little bit more selective? So if something like that comes up, is that a big boardroom discussion and everyone's weighing out the pros and cons, or do you guys kind of have bumpers in line and just say, you know what, this person is offside or this company is offside outside of our bumpers or parameters that we've put in, uh, we give them the opportunity to correct it or they're gone. Is that sort of as easily pragmatic as we, we kind of know what our variables are? I think in a lot of cases, yes, comes with experience, comes mm. with hard lessons learned, gut instinct. There's a few things that uh, tip you off. People go down a certain particular path at the beginning of a relationship. Not that you want to kind of paint everybody with the same brush, but you know, you kind of, if you've done it enough and things kind of tweak you in a different way, you kind of trust your gut, you trust your instincts. Yes, I would say everyone would, if they messed up, we'd give them multiple chances to right. correct. Right. Um, we want to avoid getting to the place where we have to correct somebody. If you can just identify it right off the bat. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. The, the gut instinct portion of it, because people don't really talk about that in business and you don't teach gut instinct. Yeah. I mean, the best predictor of future performance is past performance. Right. So you and I, we're going to get into a business relationship. First thing we're going to do is look at each other's past performance. Yep. And we're going to take a look at, um, social media presence. We're going to take a look at like, personally, if I'm getting into business, some, somebody over in British Columbia, I get onto court services online. And if they have, I had one person phone me up and he had this idea. He wanted to build a mall for guns and getting all these gun things together and it'll have a range in there and, and we'll be integral to this and warning bells, bing, 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 as this person's talked. And, uh, they had run some very successful businesses and presented with a lot of flash and a lot of panache, but my gut, something was just ringing. So I got off the phone first thing I did. Okay. Google the name. Use OSINT, open source intelligence tools, right? Absolutely. Um, 
court services online had three pages of civil suits of people suing this person or the person suing them yeah. back. And I'm like, thank you, no thank you, right? But I mean, the proposal that this person was coming out with, it sounded great. And I think, um, I think that's a difficult thing for people in business to, um, to quell their ambition of, for success, however they deem success in their own business to stop and regroup and say, what's the macro of this look like? What's the big picture of this relationship? What, what would be some, like, without naming names, uh, sort of warning signs that you would see? Like, if, if you were to talk to old you, going back a little bit, prior to oh, learning I'd kick his butt. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a, a, a pretty wide variety of, of customers and have had over the multitudes of years. And we're not looking for more, let's just talk about our distribution channels. Mm. We're not looking for more internet-based customers that mm. just have no uh, angle except to sell it at a cheaper price. Right. A lot of our products, we maintain map and we protect them, which protects our distribution mm-hmm. network. And we're looking for good partners who pay their bill, know how to sell um, optics in the way that we would want them sold and kind of extend our um, culture ethos. and relation ethos exactly yeah. into our customer base or what potentially will be you know their customer base and ours. Things they say when they call us on the phone, um, tougher on the phone. Mm. Questions maybe that they're asking or things that they're looking for without a relationship, without understanding what we're looking for and we don't know what they're looking for. So going back to some key questions, maybe we'll tip us off and then we do the same thing. We'll get online. We'll start yeah. doing our, our, our background checks. Maybe we'll give people a chance to do stuff where, you know, it's kind of cash on the barrel head, so to speak. Mm. And uh, we will, we will slide depending on the personality of, of the person. It's always tougher on the phone, and that's kind of what we've been lacking over the last three years, where we're starving a little bit for more face-to-face stuff. Where you can pick up on keys right. and the nonverbals. Meeting, the nonverbals. You meet somebody at a trade show, probably more apt to get uh, involved with them if you have a face-to-face discussion like we are now. Mm-hmm. Harder on the phone. We might be a little bit more strict, but I don't know. It just depends. And how do you describe the gut instinct? But a few things kind of add up over the years, put it all together, you make a decision. Sometimes you say yes, sometimes you say no. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I'm talking to somebody and everything they're saying sounds awesome, it sounds like exactly what I think somebody would think I would want to hear. Yeah. Okay. Alarm bells are yeah. going off, What's right? <laughs> I always just, for me, I just like back up, back up, yeah, back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you got one. A fellow I work with, and he does that to me sometimes. He's like, "I'm just doing it because I know how much it it's jacks you right? up." He's like, "I don't yeah. want to hear this." Um, the um, and how a person will treat others who can't do anything for them is a one key indicator that I've found as well. If they're, uh, yeah. you know, just seeing how they, they, if you're going out for food and they treat somebody in a certain way that um, that they're not treating you. Um, I, I that's a warning up. sign big yeah. time yeah that's a warning sign yeah I'm with you on that one is there anything else we should be chatting about 
you know, I, I've gone through a bunch of the questions. There was some basic uh, Q and A on upkeep of the uh, the scopes and uh, and, and uh, you know common questions that you'd probably get asked. Um, are there any things that maybe I've missed or that we should be touching on? That's a good question. We have talked a lot. Um, we have, you know, I think a, a, a desire and focus in our company to evolve and to grow. Our customers that are listening now, you know, stick with us. You know, <laughs> if you're waiting on a scope, we'll get it to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we want to we want to be innovative. We want to be thought leaders within, you know, without being too fatty. Um, right. Fatty. Fatty, fattish, fat, fattish, yeah. whatever. Uh, we're we're a professional company and it's based on, you know, um, professional shooters and we're very serious about our business. Like to have fun. We I think we're a fun group of people, but we, you know, we're pretty serious about this business and we're pretty serious about um, making sure that we maintain the standards that we set out to achieve. And we do have a lot of brands. We do have different variations of products. We have a lot of great relationships with our OEMs, mm. which in one case, there are customers and on other cases could be considered, you know, competition, but it's such a small world and we really value that. And we never want to damage, we'll never sacrifice the business over the relationships that we've built over the last, you know, 10, 20 years in cases like brilliant, uh, small, small company. And, and this industry as a whole is a fantastic place to work mm. for me. For a lot of the people here, I grew up in the outdoors. I love to fish. I love to hunt. Um, I like this culture, but I also like everybody else in the industry who, I think I might have said this before, they get up every day and they just grind it out and right. they want it. They want it. They want the same goals. They want to be in the same place, helping people out, providing good products, increasing. You know the the capabilities either downrange or in com competition, just refining stuff, um, making our processes better, uh, evolving our products, making those clicks a little bit clickier. A bit more clicky. You know, a little you bit more clicky. That, the clickiest the clicks. clickiest clicks. Improving our... The trade market. Uh, might already be, I don't know. <laughs> you know, just stuff that makes us more efficient. And it's right. for everything. It's like when a customer goes to our website... I'm really concerned that it's complicated. And sometimes I question, man, I wouldn't buy from me. Like right. it seems like it's, it's, it, there's a lot of information there and we're trying to make it easy. So that's a constant battle we well, hope to approve on. That's a struggle that so many companies have, will have. I mean, if you talk to a uh, software developer, an engineer, a designer, hey, I'm a full stack developer, right? Yeah. They're going to talk a very different language and what the end user is going to want to see. That's the way they have their UX experts, right? The people yeah. that, in like, from an engineer's perspective, they can produce a best quality product and, but how, is that being presented in the best way for the, for the end user? And some places do the other side and they will present in the absolute best way, but maybe, maybe what they got behind them isn't going to be quite, uh, quite at the same level, right? Yeah. And I think the way that, you know, from an operational perspective inside, we could make it um, different that's easy for us, mm. but it would be like almost incomprehensible for our customers. And so now it's, it's, a, it's a process. Like we build everything uh, almost 
it's not just in time because we carry all the inventory, but right. it's got to go into a build cycle. And I'm talking specifically Tenebrex. Right. So if a Tenebrex customer orders a flip cover, an NR reflection device, whatever, yeah. that gets through the system into the build cycle. Well, there might be 7,000 parts in front of that one customer's right. order. It takes two to three weeks. So what we need to do is get better at that. Mm. So there's a lot of things we want people to have our have our products in a timely fashion. Companies like Amazon, other just in time, which you know the FBA fulfillment, Full where fulfillment I can Amazon, have yeah. a product that I order like almost the next day. Yeah. There's an expectation of online um, procurement that that's what it's going to be, and unfortunately, you know, for us, we're not there. But we have a goal to be closer to that. Well, that's as one developer actually is talking with with said everybody judges their user experience or customer experience based on the best possible thing out there. Yeah. When, when people look at a an online store, they're yeah. comparing you to Amazon, which has millions and billions of <laughs> yeah. dollars to be able to uh, perfect totally. and see what everyone's like demographic and psychographic, yeah. you know, all of their user habits and all the rest. So it it's tough for the small and medium sized businesses. It's, it can be tough for the big ones too. Uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, another challenge, not only just for us getting the customers to find the part, like when you went to find the part and the fit for your scope, hopefully right. that was a good experience. Yeah. We also have a challenge with our dealers uh, who want to carry our products. Mm. So imagine a store that would have to have a shelf that had 5,000 parts on it. Right. It's not going to happen. Right. So we've struggled a lot with that in the past and it's very it's very difficult for customers to get the stuff that they need, have it on the shelf. Some of our competitors, um, it's a little bit easier to fit and model stuff. Ours, it's impossible. So our best path forward now has been to get our dealers, if they want to offer Tenebrex products to their customers, we can get them set up on our website as kind of a dealer account. Mm. They have access to all of the fit guides, all of the models they can buy at our dealer pricing directly on our website. It's easy for them, easier for them, because then we don't have to manage a whole bunch of infrastructure to to keep them up to date. And then it's easy for us too, because we can kind of get that into the cycle quicker. So, yeah, very cool. And and the other part that really kind of struck out, stuck out to me was the, uh, uh, the relationships, how you're saying you don't want to, why would we burn this relationship? Those are super important. uh, Honestly, anybody listening to this, I know we've covered a gamut and I know we're talking about uh, optics, but we're also talking about a company. We're talking about being an entrepreneur. We're talking about lessons learned on a hunting trip, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a kind of a, a wide gamut what we're talking about here, but I can't say it enough. Business, it's not personal. It's just business. People say that, right? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe somebody out there who's much better at business than I am can, uh, can have a compelling argument to the contrary. But in my opinion, all business is personal. It's all based on relationships. Those relationships take time to establish, which are based on trust. You betray that trust, you betray the relationship, it affects the business. And that's, from my experience, the core of business. In every situation that we've been in a downturn or we've run into a rough patch in this company, it's the relationships with our distribution and our customers and our OEMs that have seen us through that. Right. Every single time. Yeah. And it's yeah. always, it's, it's not personal. It's just business when things are going good on one side. Right. 
you just wait till the other side of the yeah. coin comes, yeah. and it will come. And we hope that we never forget that when the right. people that you know help you when you need it, and you know when you don't, and they're always there. It's those. Yeah, for me, that's super important. Awesome, Trevor. Thank you very much for being on the Silver Core Podcast. Oh. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with you, with the company, and and recording this. Thank you. It's been an honor. Mm-hmm.